Hello and welcome to And Seen. We are back this week and very excited to be talking to you about the long-awaited ninth Quentin Tarantino film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Now, we must warn you, while we are going to talk about a few trailers today, the majority of our conversation is going to be all about the movie and unfortunately it will contain spoilers. So if you haven't seen the movie yet and you don't want it ruined, don't listen to our review. Uh, generally, we try not to do spoilers or part spoilers, part no spoilers, but there's just too many talking points about this movie that you really need to discuss the ending in order to, to talk about. There's so much going on in this film that it, you cannot talk about it in a broad sense at all. So go see the movie. A lot of, well, I know a lot of people have. It did a very, very good job at the box office for opening weekend. But if you haven't, go ahead and see it and then come back to this podcast. Absolutely. Uh, so before we jump into our spoiler-filled review, let's talk about some trailers. In a world. In a world. 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 In a world. Uh, the first trailer we're going to discuss is the first full trailer. A couple weeks ago they released a teaser for this, but the first actual trailer for a film called The Hunt the Hunt is a Blumhouse horror film. Blumhouse is kind of a powerhouse when it comes to releasing horror films. They tend to make a lot of money. In this one, 12 strangers wake up in a clearing. They don't know where they are or how they got there. They don't know they've been chosen for a very specific purpose, The Hunt. And as the trailer shows, The Hunt is uh, a very uh, not discreet metaphor in which the rich people hunt poor people for sport. It's not even a metaphor. It's exactly what it is. Well, it's a metaphor because in real life, they don't do that. They're kind of talking about how they they metaphorically hunt the poor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You haven't even seen the movie yet. You don't even I know. I saw the trailer. I, I, <laughs> I saw the trailer, and I feel like I did see the movie. That was going to be my first comment about the trailer. All right. Um, yeah, I, I kind of agree. The trailer seemed fine, um, but it doesn't feel any different than good guy, bad guy, being hunted kind of in a, a house or in a, any anything, just like running away from the bad guy. It feels exactly the same as that. Now, here's where I'm going to hang my hat on this, though. This film is written by Nick Cuse and Damon Lindelof. Those two were the writers of The Leftovers. And Damon Lindelof was big into... He was one of the writers of Lost. So this has so. a pedigree. It has a pretty good cast. Uh, it stars a lot of familiar faces. Betty Gilpin from the Netflix show Glow, uh, Emma Roberts, Hilary Swank, and then you got uh, Dennis Reynolds himself from It's Always Sunny, Glenn Howard. And, and <laughs> they showed his face for like 0. .5 seconds in the trailer in case you missed it. And in, in case you haven't figured it out, he plays one of the rich snobby Because uh-huh. <laughs> what else would he play? Justin Hartley from... Um, the show that makes everybody cry on CBS. This is us. Yeah, from that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a very star-studded cast. It has some uh, some rec- name recognition in the writing room too. Uh, it's. I mean, I think it's definitely. Blumhouse knows how to market a horror film, so I think this is a, at the very least going to make a lot of money from teenagers who want to go see it. The question is, is it actually going to be good? Yeah, or is and it gonna that- be like the purge. It kind of seems... I'm not really sure. I mean, those aren't my personal types of movies. This didn't feel, like, so, so scary to me. I don't know. It felt like there's a violent aspect, but other than the violent aspect, it didn't seem, like, scary, scary. Um, like, you didn't feel like you were things were going to pop out at you. 
throughout this trailer. But, you know I what mean, I mean? For me, that makes it more likely to be scary because things jumping out is the, I that's the quickest way to get me out of our Yeah, movie. it just felt it just felt um it just felt violent and that's it. I would agree with you. Um I hope that it actually is a little bit scary. Maybe it's just a suspenseful movie. Yeah, I don't know cuz like yeah, I don't know what they could do with it that would make it scary, scary. I think suspenseful is a much better way to put it. But that doesn't mean it's a bad movie. It could, like, some of the best movies are just suspenseful. Yeah. So. I kind of realize, remember we did that trailer, Ready or Not, a couple weeks ago about the girl that's marrying into the rich family? Yeah, it's, like, almost exactly like that, <laughs> except, like, on a bigger scale. Yeah. It's, um, like, well, you, yeah. Well, you know how. Rich people hunting poor people. Hollywood works like that. Very similar films tend to be released at very similar times. It's so weird. (laughs) It's so weird, but whatever. We'll see which, if they're both good or if one of them's good, but this one's, this one has a better pedigree. Yeah, and I'm excited to see Betty Gilpin in this. Yeah, see if she can parlay her excellent performance and glow into a movie star career. Yeah. Um, Okay, the next trailer that we're going to talk about is one that Dan has been like freaking out over um this movie for a very long time even before this trailer came out and this is called the lighthouse it is starring robert pattinson and willem dafoe and other than the fact that both of them are in the movie both of them have pretty heavy accents and there's a lighthouse involved after watching the trailer i have no idea what this movie is actually about which is what a trailer is supposed to do (laughs) <laughs> it's supposed to kind of give you the sense of the vibe that the film is going to be without giving away the film, which I felt like The Hunt gave away the entire movie. Um, I almost didn't watch this trailer with you because when I know I want to watch a movie, I'm seeing this movie 100% no matter what. And once I make that decision, I don't need to see the trailer. Like you see films that release like second and third trailers. I never watch those because I feel like by the time you see all of them, you've seen way too much. Um, I did watch this with you, though, because you kind of gave me a look when I told you I wasn't going to. Well, I don't understand how you're supposed to talk about a trailer on your podcast if you're not going to watch the trailer. I was just going to say that I don't need to see a trailer to know that a atmospheric period horror film starring Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson, in which it's essentially just those two in a lighthouse talking to each other the whole time, is my bag, baby. I mean, I think they go crazy. I think that's the end of the story, is that they're going crazy and they're, like, hallucinating and, like, do I don't know. They're trapped in a lighthouse, just the two of them. Like, they go bonkers. This film did premiere at, uh, film, I think it was Toronto Film Festival earlier, and mm-hmm. just absolute raves. Uh, 91 out of 100 on Metacritic right now, which is pretty unheard of, because they actually weigh the critic scores instead of Rotten Tomatoes, which just is positive or negative. Now, the only thing that I will say, I mean, I agree that the acting look like looks like it's going to be phenomenal. And in a movie like this, that's what carries the movie. But the only thing I will say is that we've gotten really excited about some movies this year that coming out of film festivals have had rave reviews just like this. And we've been disappointed because you're right. People do come out of those festivals on a high kind of from the fact that they saw the movie at the festival. And so it skews their perspective a little bit. 100% you're correct on that. I will say that that seems to be the one in Austin. A little bit more the um, South by Southwest. South by Southwest, just because that that it's just a big party and people are being fed beer or being given beers the entire day. Uh, Toronto's a little bit more of a film snob. Uh, okay, but that's that's not no. People do absolutely they see something they hype it a little bit and they're, more. they're excited right after. Yeah, and they're seeing ten movies a day, so they write the review like five minutes after they see it really quickly. So yeah, you're absolutely right. I trust Robert Eggers. Robert Eggers. 
has directed one major film. It was The Witch, another period horror film mm-hmm. from 2015. Mm-hmm. I actually have that on the list of films that me and you need to watch together because you haven't seen it yet. I have not. But it's excellent, and I'm expecting this one to be too. This is at the very, very top of my looking forward to for the rest of the year list. All right, so we um, that will definitely be seen, and um, the other one, I guess, will TBD <laughs> yeah. on that one. We'll see. Uh, but... With that being said, we are going to go ahead and jump into our review of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So if you have not seen it, now is the time to stop listening because we are going to spoil it for you. Um, or if you're not planning on seeing it and you just want to hear us talk because you love us, that's fine That's too. okay too, but uh, just in case, giving you a <laughs> fair warning. So, Dan, why don't you give me your initial thoughts on uh, the movie? So in case you haven't heard, there's been a lot of press for this film. It's been all over. We prefaced it with our last episode in which we ranked our Tarantino films. This is Quentin Tarantino's ninth film. Mm-hmm. A faded television actor and his stunt double uh, strive to achieve fame and success in the film industry during the final years of Hollywood's golden age in 1969 Los Angeles. Now that is the premise as it says on IMDb. The part that that is missing, which is a very, very major part, is that this is all going on while the Charles Manson murders are going on at the same time. Not only are they going on at the same time, but the actor that Leonardo DiCaprio plays happens to live directly next door to the house where the infamous murders took place. Right, next to Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski's house. Um, As many people assumed when this was coming out, like Inglorious Bastards, this was Quentin Tarantino kind of rewriting history. The outcome of the film is not what actually happened in real life. People have mixed opinions on that. So when we left this film, the first, like, you know, we did, you walk out and one of us says to the other, what did you think? I think you said that to me first. Yeah, I wanted to know what you thought. And I didn't know. It was a very weird feeling. But I don't think that that's abnormal for a Tarantino movie. The weirdest thing is one of the first things I said to you is the thing with Tarantino movies is I love to watch them over and over and over again. But this particular one, I feel like I don't ever want to see again. And two days later, I'm eating those words like crazy. I, I really, knew you were going to say that. I want to go see I it again now. I knew you were going to say that, you know? like Because I've been thinking about that sentence you said to me, too. And, like, I completely disagree. Like, maybe you didn't feel that way initially. But I feel like it's the kind of movie that you watch again and realize how much you missed the first time and appreciate it more and more every time you watch it. Well, even without watching it, just let, watching it again, just like letting it sit and thinking about mm-hmm. it. And it's certainly a movie that exists to be discussed and dissected. Absolutely. There's a lot of weird stuff and a lot of um, hotly debated topics that I think we'll get into a little bit here. But even just doing that... I've, 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 I appreciate the movie a lot more now than I did 48 hours ago. Yeah. So so for me, I think that this movie, I, th- I think that there's a couple different angles to take this movie from. My initial feeling leaving the movie theater was like, all right, this was not a plot-driven movie, really. This is a showcase of, of actors. This is a, this is Quentin Tarantino choosing to make basically mini movies inside a larger movie like i think i said to you every movie every scene is is looks and feels like it's its own separate movie outside that just like somehow weaves into a larger story but really i think it's a showcase of 
some phenomenal acting and, and, and some great writing, whether or not you realize it first time around, too. Tarantino always gets incredible performances, even in the films that we discussed last week that we don't like. Like, The Hateful Eight, we didn't like at all. But the performances, especially Jennifer Jason Leigh, yeah. he gets incredible lead performances and he gets big name actors to come up in very small roles and also knock it out of the park. Yeah, I mean, we could have a whole conversation about the small roles that were in this movie. I mean, even uh, Margot Robbie, like she was in the, she was on screen a lot less than I had expected her to be on screen. So instead of, go, let's just go there right now because okay. that's a very big plot point is how Sharon Tate is handled. You hear, there are some people who are angry because it's 2019 and there are people angry over everything. I thought that one of the Christians that I've seen is Margot Robbie barely had any lines, and that's correct. She barely right. had any lines. But I feel like Film School 101 tells you that that doesn't make a good performance. It does not. Just giving them random shit to say doesn't make it a good performance. I think that what Quentin Tarantino did for Sharon, for Sharon Tate with and this performance by Margot Robbie is incredible. It's a great tribute to her. Based on how they portrayed her in this film and Roby's performance, from now on, when I hear the name Sharon Tate, I actually have a basis of what Sharon Tate was like. Yes. And not, whereas up until two weeks ago, when someone said the name Sharon Tate, the first thing I thought of was Charles Manson's greasy, ugly face and the horrible thing that he did, his people did to her. Uh, She doesn't speak a lot. No, but Tarantino still managed to humanize her. Not only humanize her, but she's just like, She's just portrayed as this like bubbly young actress about like, she's really hitting her stride about mm-hmm. to break out in Hollywood. She's super happy. Her whole future is in front of her. She's about to have a family with Roman Polanski who they handle. <laughs> That's a whole other thing. That's a different thing. <laughs> but uh, I mean I could not agree with you more. And actually her sister, Sharon Tate's sister was extremely involved in the creation of her character on screen with Quentin Tarantino and and has highly praised the way that she's portrayed. When the when this project was announced, she sat down with him and she was originally not into the idea at all and he went over what he was going to do and she was she then got on board and yes you're right she's given her approval for that yeah and 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 that i think that speaks volumes to me in terms of how how he really he really gave true respect to her in a way that that you're exactly right evolves the story especially for those of us who did not like we were we weren't even born when this happened so as we're like a a lot, you know, it was 1969. It wasn't, like, yesterday that this happened. So it's fair that people don't know who she is or know her outside of the Manson murders. And now you do. Now you have an idea. And there's also a scene where on a afternoon she decides to go watch at a movie theater her film that had just been released, a Dean Martin film that she mm-hmm. was third build in. And when you see her watching the film, he didn't recreate it with Margot Robbie playing Sharon Tate. He showed the actual film with Sharon Tate. Which was beautiful. And I think a lot of people, that's the first time they've ever seen Sharon Tate actually yeah. on screen. For me, it was. Absolutely. It was me, too. I was I, like, oh, that's what she looked like in, in real life. Uh, I thought it was handled very well. I think that it's one of those things where some people decided they were going to be angry about it before they even saw the film. Uh, other than that, I think that it was just a beautiful tribute to Sharon Tate. By Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. Um, and I think that a, a good kind of segue into talking about the rest of the movie is really the other side of, of what Sharon Tate meant in this movie. Outside of just being a tribute to her, 
uh, I think that Quentin Tarantino used her as a metaphor, basically. She represented Hollywood in 1969 the 1960s. 1969 Hollywood. She was the representation of that pure, like, peace, love, and happiness Hollywood that basically, with her murder, died with her. Perfectly said. And, and so, in using her story and, and kind of weaving it into the story, the the stories of other actors, um, of other people living in the time and, and Hollywood as a whole, it pays tribute to a larger error and she is the vehicle, I think the perfect vehicle for that. And between the Sharon Tate stuff and Leonardo DiCaprio, play, this is we've had a good discussion, we haven't even talked about DiCaprio or Brad Pitt, yeah, which is great. Uh, yeah. Uh, and between her and Leonardo DiCaprio's character, Rick Dalton, a lot of television shows and actors are referenced. Some are real and some are fake. And it's almost like Quentin Tarantino is daring you to go do some research and look up. And in doing so, you're going to learn, learn some things about, about the time. golden age of Hollywood. Yeah. And I think that's really cool. Because I we both did that the next day. We went and we're like, all right, so we know. So who was I, real? I know this who show is, is an actual show. <laughs> uh, Cliff Booth, not a real guy. Yes, Cliff Booth is not a real guy. Cliff Booth is played by Brad Pitt. Also uh, an extremely interesting character, but go ahead. No, I mean, that's basically, I was just going to say, I was going to introduce who the characters were. Leonardo DiCaprio is a fading former action star, Rick Dalton, once a movie star, and now he is relegated to doing, he's being like the weekly villain in, in television shows, which was a thing in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Although television in the 60s, like, there were everybody watched the same shows all the time. Right, right. But I think that they discuss at the beginning of the movie what it means to be the leading man in a television show versus the, the villain of the week. Al Pacino and his little cameo yeah. goes over that whole thing. Yeah, exactly. Which I thought was was a great way to set up the whole movie. Yeah, and Pacino hasn't had that many great roles lately. This was a nice little one for him, and it sets us up nicely for The Irishman, which is coming out later this year. Yeah. Um... So, um, but let's let's talk about Cliff for a second. Okay. Uh, I thought he was one of the most interesting. I thought he was the most interesting character in the entire movie. I think he's the lead of the movie. I agree more so than more so than Leonardo DiCaprio. And I, look, I don't. I think Leonardo DiCaprio did a great job. Phenomenal. But I think that Brad Pitt. Stole the show. I don't even want to say stole because everyone was really good. Everyone was really good. But Brad Pitt was the best. He was, he was, this was a great performance by Brad Pitt. Like, just unbelievable. I think last week we talked about how much we loved him in Inglorious Bastards. And I left there just loving him even more after this movie going, oh my God, like what, like what phenomenal acting and what a phenomenal performance that came out of him in such a complex character. Like, he is one of the, I mean, he's an extremely messed up, weird, twisted kind of character that you weave your way through in these extremely subtle ways. And he He's plays messed up weird, subtly. but he's also charming and loyal and a great friend. And yeah. he may or may not have killed his wife. And you just don't know. <laughs> and so you're conflicted about the way you feel about him the entire movie because you also love him so much because he plays it so well. And that's another thing that the Twitter lynch mobs are up in arms about is the the using the fact that he may have killed his wife as like a almost almost as a joke, almost as like a comedic vehicle. Well, I didn't see it as a joke. I, I didn't either. I don't get out, outrage over stuff like that. It was it was definitely played off like, oh, he might have done this, but it's not. Well, but also like one of the interesting th- things that I read is that 
a lot of people think that his character or that aspect of his character was talking about other aspects of Hollywood, like the fact that Robert Wagner has been accused for many, many years of killing his wife, Natalie Wood, on a boat. Yes. Like the exact same scenario. There were a lot of characters in old Hollywood who had rumors like that that were unproven about them. It was definitely a homage to that. And yes, especially the Robert Wagner. That was a clear clear reference to that. Mm Mm-hmm. Another little weird, like, this is so stupid, but a thing that's been all over Reddit is that the woman on the boat also apparently, I don't remember what she looks like, but also apparently kind of looks like Angelina Jolie. It's Rebecca Gayhart. <laughs> I don't know. That's what people say on Reddit. I'm just telling you what I read. People think that she kind of looks like Angelina Jolie to reference, like, some of the accusations that have also happened between him and her in their real life. Well, I hope whoever said that didn't strain any muscles with that reach. <laughs> but anyway, I mean, even even knowing all of that, I think he... I'm trying to think of the best way to put it. Like, he's just... He twists and... You twist and turn with him. There are times when you really are rooting for him. And I don't think you're ever really not rooting for him. But there are times where you question him. So you find out that he kills... That he supposedly killed his wife in a very nonchalant way. um, Which is a little jarring. And then... Later, you also, like, see this interaction between him and Bruce Lee, which is... Bruce Lee's daughter is not very happy about that. Yeah, I think a lot of people, a lot of Bruce Lee fans are really upset. I thought the portrayal of Bruce Lee was was incredible. I thought it was funny and well done. The portrayal of Bruce Lee, but I think... He's kind of made out to be a joke. Yes, exactly. Like, Bruce Lee is, is, like, the whole thing feels, like, a little bit farcical on Bruce Lee. But I think everyone in the world knows Bruce Lee was a badass and... She can relax. It's okay. Right. And the other thing is, like, you're seeing that story. When when you get that story, you're seeing it from Cliff's memory. Like, you're in Cliff's memories at that point. So, like, he could have gotten his ass kicked, but he's not going to remember it that way. He's going to be like, look, like, it was worth it. That's why I don't have jobs anymore, because I beat the shit out of Bruce Lee. You know? Um... And then the other side, like, you also see him go through, and you see him in this really weird flirtation with a clearly underage girl. Like, the age difference between him and the Manson family girl that he befriends, kind of, is but here's the thing. very uncomfortable. But I don't know if I agree with you, because she actually makes advances at him, and he goes out of his way to say... No, 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 no. I'm not doing anything You're with right. any underage girls. I totally... And I, I actually... I almost thought that that scene in there was kind of, like, was put in there because of the Roman Polanski stuff that is in the film as well. It could have been. It was like Tarantino's way of being like, I don't support underage Right, but I hookups. think it walked the line because I think it still think it walked the line. You're right. Like, when she offered to, like, go down on him in his car, he said no, but... He has to see her ID. Like, he has his, <laughs> right, excuse me, he didn't say no, he has his ear ID, which is fine. And but like, she he doesn't also have was it, he like says in no. a, He was also, like, even before that, there was weirdness, and, like, it was one of the first things I thought when, like, that first scene happened where they, like, she's walking by his car and he can, like, they kind of, like, make eye contact. It was one of the first things I thought was, like, how old is he supposed to be and how old is she supposed to be? Because this looks really wrong. Well, like, really inappropriate. Well, it was the age of free love, so I expected that, I didn't... 
like the the, the girls. That's how it was. was I understand. I was just it, it was something that without thinking about it crossed my mind. Like I didn't try to be like find a thing, but like immediately my mind went there. And actually, the fact that his character did was so strict about that and said, "No, I'm not doing anything till I see ID." That was like a little bit surprising to me, and it, it kind of shows that he has like a little bit of a moral compass. Yeah, but that's one of the most challenging parts about him as a character is because you see he has a moral compass, but you also see this complete other side that comes out at casual, random moments. So then after she propositions him for that and he says no, you get a good five-minute shot of her feet because of Quentin Tarantino. There's a lot of feet in this movie. It's like the, the, everybody knows by now Quentin Tarantino has a thing for feet and he does not hide that at all. Why? Well, you know what? If the thing you have is for feet in today's world <laughs> and that's you're famous and you're known for having a thing for feet and not for anything worse, like by all means, show it off. Quentin and uh, Rex Ryan are the two celebrities Great. who are known for their feet. Great. <laughs> if all you want is feet, fine more power to you by the way that hippie was played by margaret qualley who's your girl i love her she does a good job she does a very good job i really enjoyed seeing her in another role um i hope to see her in more but yeah i just i can't get enough i can't stop thinking about cliff's character and um i think we'll talk about it a little more as we talk more about the movie and get more into the ending and things like that too but i don't want to completely disregard leonardo dicaprio, leonardo DiCaprio. yes I was, I was going to bring us there i was going yeah. to bring us back there too yeah now DiCaprio, this is his second movie with tarantino it's interesting because quentin tarantino used to like to pull actors out of obscurity rather than put superstars mm-hmm. in his lead role and he's kind of gone off track a little bit he now he puts brad pitt and leonardo dicaprio in his roles but, I, but you get performances like that, so why wouldn't you? I liked it better when he was bringing back guys. Like, it, it made me think... The one thing I kept thinking about is that Rick Dalton, at that point of his career, would have been a character that Quentin Tarantino would give a lead role to and bring back to prominence. Uh, that's very fair. Now, that's do you, very fair. Do you think that Quentin Tarantino has put any of himself in that character? Do you think he's saying anything about his own career where he sees his that he fears that... His might be coming to an end a little bit. I had not thought of that before you asked that question. There's at least two or three separate scenes where this character straight up breaks down and cries over fear that he's becoming irrelevant. Yeah. Tarantino's gone on the record many times as saying he only has one more movie left. But that's been his, like, plan. You know? That doesn't... Like, saying you only have one more movie left and saying you're only going to do ten movies doesn't, to me, feel like you're becoming irrelevant, it feels like you're making the strategic decision to bow out at the appropriate time. And I do think he had made that decision a while ago, but I also think he kind of feels a little bit like he used to put out an ultra-violent movie and everyone was just so excited about it. Now times are changing. He puts out a movie and you're get, all you get is dozens of think pieces. Is, is there too much violence against women in this film? Is there too much this in the film? I understand what you're saying, but also like... I think that that I think that that stuff was just happening before, and it's there's more of a medium for it because it's all online. Like my mother to this day has never seen Pulp Fiction because she can't. She doesn't like violence. Stomach stuff. the idea of watching Pulp Fiction. Like, and there's I'm sure plenty of people in the world who say, why would you make a like to them needlessly violent movie? There's always gonna be people like that. I don't I don't know that I think. 
I mean, maybe he thinks that some of this is his own. Like, he's putting some of his own fears into it. But it didn't scream that to me. That, like... Look, if you're if you're a vegetarian, don't go to a steakhouse and complain that there's meat. If you are sexually prude, don't go to a strip club and complain that there's nude bodies. And if you don't like violence, don't watch a Quentin Tarantino movie and then complain that there's too much violence in it. I guess so. You know what was interesting, too? There was one line that stuck out in the movie, and I'm going to do a horrible job. I'm going to butcher the line. <laughs> but there was one, one line that stuck out in the movie to me, and I don't know how much of... I mean, I, I'm sure that... I don't know a lot about the Manson family and their thought process and all of that in terms of making the decisions to go after the people that they went after. Um, but when the when the the four people who were who were originally going to go do the murders were sitting in their car and they were talking about it, kind of like pumping themselves up. One of the girls was like made a whole thing about how they were taught basically to kill by violent things that they saw on TV, by violent violence that was portrayed and killing that was portrayed on the screens in front of them by directors and actors and things like that. So they were going to use what they were taught against them. And I thought that that was like a little bit of a meta moment with for Quentin Tarantino of like saying, like the things that I do here, the, the, the violence that I put here, it's for entertainment purposes. Like, this isn't real life, and I'm aware it's not real life. And so, yeah, it's violent, but that's not promoting violence. I mean, I agree with you. I, I feel, I, it felt like a meta moment to me. I was like, oh, that's funny. This is something that's being said in a Tarantino movie who's probably one of the most violent directors I've ever seen. I've always been able to separate, like, I feel the same way with video games. I feel the same way with, like, you can have things in film without the message being that this is good. Uh-huh. Like you're you're making art. That's why every it doesn't time... matter whether or not everyone agrees with it. Like that's what it is. Yes, I agree. And also, um, have you? Ever... I do think if you're if you haven't seen this movie, I don't know why you're listening to us now. But <laughs> you should go and actually read the story of what happened the night of Sharon Tate's murder because it a lot of it does make a lot more sense if you have read it. So that's just... Yeah, I feel like I need to go back and read more about it. It makes you intrigued about the events so that I would, happened. I knew about as much as you did. I've read. I've since read things, and now things make more sense. I knew that, I knew that he... That people killed on because he told them to. Yes, basically. And, and I knew, like, the devil thing. Like, whatever um, that guy, Tex, said about, like, I am the, the devil. devil. Like, that's something that was actually, apparently, like, something that was said in the testimony or whatever. So it's funny that we talk about that guy, Tex. That's just a really, really side note. It's played by an actor named... Um, Austin Butler. Austin Butler, who just signed, who they just signed to play Elvis. Yeah. So do you, I, th- he, I think he did kind of jump... Like, he does have leading man he, charisma. He does have... Like, he was very present on screen. Um, you know, you, you, pick, you could pick him out of a group. And it actually, aside from him, Tex... I was reading is is a was a real person. All three too. of the all four of the people in the car that were going to kill Sharon Tate are were real the real people, are the real people who were there. The yes. other ones that you saw at camp were not necessarily real. The other ones that you saw at their like camp out. Like, like every single individual girl at that thing was not necessarily right. And a even the what even like the ones that were like a bigger role in that scene were not are, are just based off of general Manson family members. But the the four that showed up. That night are yes. are real people. Correct, correct. Yeah. 
Um, but yeah, that's a good side note. Um, I was excited to see him after learning, like see him in it and see how he did after learning that he had had just gotten this great break. He beat some heavy hitters. He beat Miles Teller. Um, I think G Easy might not have been as difficult for him to beat. Yeah, but <laughs> I don't know. All right, so off the Elvis thing, back to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about Leonardo DiCaprio. Sure. Um, how did you feel about his character in general? Like, was he a likable character? I think I went back and forth between that. I think he was definitely likable. He wasn't like a bad person. He, he was, was a bad person. He was a guy whose glory days was behind him. He definitely had gotten too into alcohol, too into drinking. And he was his alcohol was preventing any chance he had of making a Hollywood comeback. Mm-hmm. Um but he wasn't a bad guy. He seemed to just be someone who Hollywood had chewed up and they were done with at the point. Yeah. I think he's certainly a guy you could root for and is certainly a guy you could be like, I hope that he gets a chance to remain relevant again as long as he can take care of himself. Right. There were. I think that caveat is huge. Like, you saw him kind of like, like, you could have easily seen the film go in a different direction where he just goes towards total self-destruct, self-destruction. But like you see him have drunken like anger tantrums by himself in his trailer, but he's you never see him like act like an asshole to anybody else. He's always a professional, respectful person, and his his relationship with the little girl actress is one of the cooler scenes of the film. Um, he he's doing one of his television episodes, and he ends up having this really great conversation with this eight year old actress who teaches him about being a method actress. <laughs> And it's really cute and also, like, a very touching. It is very touching. And, and it was, I thought what was great was, like, when he was giving himself that hard time in his trailer afterward, he was, he said to himself, he's like, I'm going to show that little girl. He's like, I'm going to show them and I'm going to show that girl that I can do this. Yes. Yeah. And then when he, find, when he does and he kills his performance and she says that was the best acting I've ever seen, he just breaks just, down. like, pure tears. Awesome, awesome scene. Oh, my God. It was great. It so, was great. I think when, I, when we first left the movie, Tarantino knows how to make incredible scenes. Mm-hmm. When we left the film, I think my issue was that they didn't add up as a whole in my head when I first saw them as much as I had hoped that they would. Okay. I still kind of feel that way. I still feel like it's a little bit discombobulated. But um, it's a lot less of a problem for me than it was directly after seeing it, after talking about it, after researching things. Right. Like, I don't think it was discombobulated. That feels like the wrong word to me. I feel like each scene had a very specific purpose, even if it wasn't a conventional purpose. Well, it did, it dragged. There, there was, it was, it's a two hour and 34 minute movie. It doesn't, and it's not one of the, it's a Pulp Fiction's an over two hour movie, and that movie breezes you, yeah. by. This one kind of feels it, at least for segments in the middle, where it does definitely drag. Uh, and then the final 30 minutes happen, and it's, possibly 30 of the best minutes of cinema. Yeah, I thought it was... I'm so excited to talk about that. <laughs> yeah. I'm so excited to talk about the end. So in real life, we know that the four techs and the three girls show up on that street, and they enter the home where Sharon Tate was with her baby and her friend. Her, her pre- pregnant belly. Yes. She was not... She, she didn't she have the pregnant. baby. She yeah. was pregnant. And her her friend, the boyfriend, was there, played by Emile Hirsch. Um, and two of her friends who were who also there, including, uh, what's her name, Folger. Yes, Alice who, Folger. Yes. Heir to the Folger's, Folger's Coffee. Coffee Emp- Empire, yes. So in the real life, they show up and they just kill all four of those people. Like, ma- like 
brutal, brutal. In Quentin Tarantino's world, that does not happen. Right. So in Quentin Tarantino's world, they end up at the wrong house somehow. Well, what they park, they have the park right in front of... Uh, of Rick, Rick Dalton's. Uh, I have to learn to say the character name. I was about to be like, they park in front of Leonardo DiCaprio's house. I was actually, the <laughs> side note on here, in um, in my reading about this and all of that, um, someone else brought that up. They were like, how often like, do you have such star power? Like, there's, there's a lot of times where you learn the characters' names, but like, there's such star power and such strength here that like, you just call them by their actors' names, and like you understand that it's the character, and you still feel the character when you talk about the actors' names. So I just do that movie. for everybody, though. That's okay. the problem. I well, also, I, apparently I never, other people are feeling that with this movie as well. I never remember character names, and I always say the actor name, and it's just that, that's a thing right. I well, do. Well, Rick Dalton. So Rick they pull up in front of Rick Dalton's house, and they assume that that's a house that uh, Charles Manson was telling them to go to. And so they break in. Cliff has just begun his acid trip rick is in the pool in the back and his wife is asleep in the bedroom no they pull up to go to the tate house but they happen to pull up in front of rick dalton's house because he just he because he lives next door to them right and they make their car muffler is making so much noise that he comes out and screams at them and makes them leave yeah and then they leave and they cut and then they say fuck this we'll go kill those guys i don't think they ever oh i didn't i thought that they were Go, I thought they were still going to go do the other house. I thought they just ended up at the wrong house. I, I, I guess we have to go see this movie again. I thought that they basically said, this guy's an actor. This guy was in violent stuff. He's part of the reason that all oh. this happens. Well, you might be very right. Um, you might be right, and I might have just missed that. <laughs> I could be wrong. I don't know. I mean, the, the whole way that they were talking in the car... Felt like they were just planning on going like on a crazy killing spree either way. And so I thought that they just went to the wrong house first and they were going to like finish there and go on to the next. I mean, it doesn't really, it doesn't matter why. It doesn't matter. They do end up back at Rick Dalton's house instead of at Sharon Tate's house and things don't go very well for them. No. Partially because of, I think, in a competition with Brad Pitt for the best character in the movie. The doggy. Yes. What was the dog's name? Wasn't it Brandy? Brandy. Brandy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's Ugh. up there. It's in the it's in the Mount Rushmore of best movie dogs <laughs> of all time. Just so sweet and so cute and just perfect. And but, so obedient and when told to kill. Then she does it. Um, but what follows, I mean, it is hilarious and brutal at the same exact time because you also know that Cliff is tripping off his ass at that moment. And he's like, realizes that these people are there to kill him. And he starts hysterically laughing. <laughs> he, he even says to him, he goes, you guys are real, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was brutal. I mean, it brought out that, like, the violence that you'd almost been waiting the entire film for. Uh, like, you knew something was happening. You knew it was going to be violent. Um, and you, you saw some pretty brutal attacks, both by Brandy and by uh, Cliff and, and all of that. There was one, uh, there's a film critic named Stephen Hyde, and he's a very good writer. I like a lot of his stuff. He wrote a theory that he believes where the entire final scene is Brad Pitt's acid trip as he's walking his dog through the woods. Like he passes that car on his way walking the dog and then envisions that whole thing while what's actually happening in real life is what really happened. I don't buy it. I don't buy it, but it's really interesting. And the guy, Stephen Hines, a very good writer, and after reading it, I wasn't just like, F off, idiot. I was just like, all right, you know what? 
that was a cool thing to put out there. It's a cool thing to discuss. I don't think that's the case. I don't think that that's at all what Tarantino meant to be. Correct, but just it was just an interesting it was, discussion. It, it wasn't. It's an interesting thought perspective. It kind of makes like it's like sad. You know, like, not that the whole reality isn't sad, but you kind of, like, leave the movie, like, a little more uplifted than thinking about the reality of what actually happened. And so thinking about it that way just makes you sad again. (laughs) So between Brad Pitt's character and the dog, they kill three of the four. No, so the only three of them went up there, actually. Oh, that's right. One of them ran away. One of them ran away. I guess she chickened out. She was like, this sounds horrifying. She's like, I gotta go be... I'm out. She's like, I gotta go star in Stranger Things. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It was Maya Hawk. Also, another side note, a lot of the actors and actresses he cast in this film are the offspring of celebrities. Yeah, I mean, this is a who's who. Yeah, Margaret... Even Margaret Qualley is Andy McDowell's daughter. Um... I'm not going to go through yeah, all we of can, them. Yeah, <laughs> but it, it's, it's, really, it's definitely something you did on purpose. It's a who's who of, of this, uh, of, of young Hollywood right now. And it's interesting. I wonder if he's doing that to be like, that's young Hollywood now playing in a movie about young Hollywood, 1969. Yeah, which I think is kind of cool. Yeah. I think um, it's kind of cool. But anyway, so you have uh, Brad Pitt and his dog. You have them. They take care of two of the people. Right? Yes. And then the third ends up, like, totally maimed by the dog also and ends up in the pool where Rick is with headphones on, totally unaware that any of this was happening inside his home. Um, and then and one of the coolest moments of the movie happens. Yeah. Uh, he had previously mentioned he was in a film that he had to learn how to use a, was it a, a flamethrower? Flame and the studio allowed him to keep the flamethrower after filming it. So he goes and gets this flamethrower that he had used on Nazis in a war movie, and he just completely torches his bitch. Torched? Torched the bitch. While she was in the pool. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was incredible. It was, you saw him You saw him go to the shed and, like, start to take something out, and you were like, fuck, yes, this is it. This is awesome. Like, you were so excited. Um, and I thought the whole sequence was Perfection. I agree. And this is another one of the talking head things is should we be cheering violence against a young girl in a situation like that? That's another... I hate that perspective. I hate it Let's too. Let's talk about it. She that was, girl she, was she, there to, to murder kill. you. You kill her before she kills you. There's, you don't need to give mercy at that point. There's a lot of pieces out about how people compare this to Inglourious Bastards, but these girls and boys weren't exactly Nazis. They were brainwashed by an evil man. Which might be true, but, but they were they still were about, trying to kill him. They were there to kill you. Either way, it doesn't matter. Like it's very sad that that he was able, that Charles Manson was able to get such a grip on on so many young people, um, and, and really brainwash them. Yes, but that being said, your actions are still your own, and if you are there to kill someone. Like, why, why, would, why should you not kill the person trying to kill you? I'm just bringing up the thing pieces. This is what film Twitter is it talking about. It, I'll, sometimes I'll scroll through and pe- everyone's bitching about this and that. It just makes my blood boil. Because just watch the damn movie. Enjoy an awesome ending. It was great. Um, and then at the end, Leonardo DiCaprio goes... Brad Pitt gets taken to the hospital. DiCaprio bids him farewell, says that he'll come visit him tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And... The neighbors, Sharon Tate and the guy who's staying with Sharon Tate, 
Emil Hirsch's character. Emil Hirsch's character. Invite him in. Jay Sebring. That's his Jay name. Jay Sebring. He's a real good. person. Yeah. Yeah, he's like, he was a hairstylist. He's a hairdresser. Yes. Yeah. And they, um, they did that whole spiel in the beginning about how he loved Sharon. Well, they were together. And then she left him for Roman. And then she left him for Roman play. And they kind of had like a love triangle thing going yeah. on. Uh, hey, because it was the 60s. Free love. Absolutely. The, and then the very end, she, they had never met. She said, hey, neighbor, why don't you come on in for a drink? And then you're left to assume that maybe he then got in with the Polanski clan. Mm-hmm. And Just guys... like he said earlier in the movie, he's like, I'm one pool party away from starring in the next <laughs> Polanski film. And I thought it was a great ending for all parties involved. I did too. You think, I wonder if, um, if Cliff is going to end up tagging along as as a uh, to continue being a stuntman. Yeah, you know. I don't think Roman Plansky movies need too many stuntmen. It's TBD, <laughs> TBD. But that being said, like he was, uh, Rick was about to like had basically told him. So Cliff was working basically as his second hand man, as Rick's second hand man. He drove him places. He fixed up things around his house. He had called like, himself a stuntman, but he was essentially his gopher. Yes, exactly, and his stuntman when appropriate. Yes. Um, but he had basically said, I can't keep you on anymore. I can't afford it. My assumption is that if he were to get another big role, he, he would then be able to afford it and their relationship wouldn't change at all. It's interesting because there's a lot to think about. Like it, it ends there and that's a good ending. Everyone's mm-hmm. pretty happy with it. But then what? Like Charles Manson still has a bunch of brainwashed people he has committing murders. Yeah, I don't think that. But the story wasn't about Charles Manson. That's a thing, and I think that's why a lot of people came at like a lot of people came in thinking that it was a story about Charles Manson and those killings. I think that's why they were disappointed because you're missing the point. The point is not the story specifically was not about the Manson family. The story was about Hollywood. Yes. It was a homage to Golden Age Hollywood. Hollywood. And so he ends the story with you thinking about Hollywood and not the Manson family. You thinking about what's next now that history has redirected itself. I think a lot of people who don't really follow movies the way that we do, all they heard is Tarantino made a movie about the Manson murders and expected something completely different. I I think that's fair. Um, But I'm happy with this. I'm very happy with this. And. I don't know. I think the people who thought that, like, it was going to be a timeline of events similar to what actually happened, I think that's just silly. And one more cool story arc, <laughs> or side, side note, is the actor who played Charles Manson only had, like, one line in the whole film. Manson was a very, very minor character, mm-hmm. which I think they did in pur- on purpose. I completely agree. But that same actor is playing Charles Manson in Mindhunter Season 2 on Netflix. Oh, that's so cool. And he's going to, like, apparently he has, like, a much stronger arc where they actually dive into Charles Manson himself. That's awesome. I love that show. Oh, it was PS. great. So if you haven't watched the first season, you should watch it before the second season comes out because I am very ready for the second season of that yes, show. I think it's coming out in a month, and the same actor plays the same character, which is really cool. Yeah, really cool. Also kind of weird to know you look that much like Charles Manson. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah. So, Dan, do you have any other thoughts before we give our... Oh, actually, I do. Yeah, go, go, go. Sorry. Go. I, don't, I don't think I do. I think, I, I think I've gotten out everything I wanted to say about this. So, I just have a quote that, like... Uh, brings back this whole like connecting um i want to read a a quote from one of the articles that i read because i can't say it the way that it's said here um but 
it like kind of brings back this whole like connection of today's Hollywood to old Hollywood and some of the scandal that's happening and um, brings a little bit of perspective I think into some of the things that I that after reading this actually I think were quite purposeful on Tarantino's part that I had not thought of. So this is from an article on Mashable.com. Um, it says, but taking a meta view of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood's themes inspires some darker, less flattering considerations as well. A scene in which Rick improvises by throwing his scene partner, an eight-year-old girl, to the ground may bring to mind Uma Thurman's story of being seriously injured on the set of Kill Bill when Tarantino pushed her to perform a dangerous stunt. Jay Sebring's happy ending might provoke mixed feelings if you recall that the actor playing him, Emile Hirsch, was convicted of choking a female studio executive. And Cliff's flirtation with an underage Manson girl might sit oddly in a movie that also features Roman Polanski, who was convicted of raping a 13-year-old girl. I mean, I get it. It's a super, like, like the, the connections are there, and I cannot imagine that they are not purposeful. Yeah, I actually, I mean, like I said, I thought the pit thing with the flirtation with the character and him turning her down, I thought that was Tarantino's way of saying, like, look, I know I put Polanski in the movie. I know that when you hear his name, you're going to get icky feelings. That's my way of saying I don't vouch for what he did. I guess, but he's also, like, it seems like what you were saying almost with Leonardo DiCaprio's character, like, bringing in pieces of his own drama, his maybe, own thoughts. Maybe, that bring, maybe the Angelina Jolie thing was right then. Was right, exactly. <laughs> um, and I didn't even know this thing about Emil Hirsch, which... Well, Emil, Emil Hirsch was one of the most, one of, like, the strongest up-and-coming actors in Hollywood. We saw him in the... Um, the Girl Next Door. The Girl Next Door. But then he did Into the Wild, which was an Oscar-nominated film. He didn't get an Oscar nom, but he was the star of it, and he was very good. He was well on his way to being a superstar, and then apparently at some premiere, he got drunk and choked a studio exec who was a woman. Yeah. Um, that's what it seems. Uh, yeah. And I remember when it happened, but, and then he got, basically, he got blacklisted. He's starting to get roles here and there. Mm-hmm. We saw him in that movie a little while ago with the, um, the, the kid that works with his dad at the morgue. Oh, that scary movie. Yeah. I'm having, I'm becoming old. I'm, I don't remember what that movie was called. The, I mean, I don't know. We're not going to. I don't know. It was some, I don't, it was stupid. It's fine. It was scary. It was good. Yeah. It, I didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Neil Hirsch was once one of the golden boy, young, young kids of Hollywood and he was going to be great and yeah, don't choke women. It's a good, good rule of thumb for life. Good rule of thumb. All right. So on that note of don't choke women, <laughs> um, for a couple questions, one is. And, and you might, like, I feel like I, maybe I even need some more time to think about this, but where do you think this movie ranks Good among point. the rest of the Tarantino movies? Last week we did our rankings. Where do you think this falls? Before Jackie Brown. Like, Before Jackie like Brown. Like, Jackie Brown would be above it. So, if Jackie Brown was four, this would be five. Yes. I have this. I, it's it's an okay Tarantino movie, which makes it a very good movie. I still have it. I have it better than the Kill Bills, better than Django, and better uh-huh. than Hateful Eight. I agree with better than Kill Bills, Django, and Hateful Eight. I think that right now I probably also put it one behind Jackie Brown, but Another with viewing. the understanding that yeah, if I were to see it again, that could very well change. I I could see it happening as well. I could see this one being one where the more you see it every time you appreciate you like it more, more and of it. more and and i don't think that's unlike his other movies either i always walk away from his movies feeling like 
a little weird. Like, I need to digest. Like, I need to understand and I need to see, like, really see everything that, that has happened. Um, at, like, after stepping away from it a little bit. And at almost every movie, when I watch it a second time, I, I like it even better. He just packs so much into every... Th- it's impossible you- to take it all in at one time. Yep. Yeah. So I'm very excited to see this movie for a second time. Yeah, I am too, despite um, what I said as soon as we were walking out of the, the theater. Exactly. All right, so give us your score. So I think it's one of the best things I've seen this year, which is more a comment on how movies have been this year than saying this is incredible. But I'm, I think it's like a 7.3 out of 10. Do we do point threes and not like just in increments of... Five? Yeah, I have to do it that way. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, we haven't done that yet. Because I, I like this know. more. I like this. I, th- I liked it a lot more. I think I liked it more than the seven, but not as much as a seven point five. All right. All right. I have this movie at an eight. All right. But so maybe it's an eight point three. I didn't know that was an option. Eight point three. So what I did is I thought of it out of a hundred. I thought of it as like a seventy three oh, out of a hundred. Oh, I see. I see. I see. So then I, and then I just shortened it. All right, all right. No, yeah, I think that like I think like an eight point three is fine then. All right, I think that's. A good I think an eight point three is fine. The more I talk about it, the more I think about it, the more I read about it, the more I like it, and I think that that number would even go up with a second viewing, like I said. And it's certainly worth seeing. I think a lot of people will see it a second time, and it already this is the highest opening weekend box office for a Quentin Tarantino film in his career. So yeah. good for him. I mean, we went to we went on Sunday. We went to a 3.20 movie on Sunday. I thought it was going to be empty in there. And it was packed. It was very packed. It was completely packed. I was shocked. So that bodes well. Yep. All right. On that note, um, like we said, if you haven't seen the movie and you've listened to this entire podcast, um, great for you. But not many of you. But you should still see the movie. Um, If you've only seen it once, maybe you'll join us in seeing it again. And um, we'd love to hear from you. We want to hear what your thoughts are on this movie. Did you love it? Did you hate it? Where does it rank? Um, Tell us online, Instagram and Twitter, at Anseen, A-A-A-N-D-S-E-E-N. I think the only question for us going forward is, will we have time this weekend to see Hobbs and Shaw? Oh, God. Because if so, that's next week's episode. Uh All right. Well, we will keep you guys posted on that one. Uh, But for now, have a good one. See you soon.